Thank you for joining us. This is From the Newsroom, the weekly podcast presented by the Holland Sentinel staff. I am Brian Vernellis, Digital Director at the Sentinel. I'm joined today by Managing Editor Audra Gamble. And joining us in studio today are two detectives from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, uh, Detective Sarah Philman and Detective Jeremy Baum. The idea behind this, um, uh, both detectives that we have today are part of the cold case team over at the sheriff's office, which is a really cool assignment, I think. I'm a little jealous. It sounds very, very neat. Um, and recently, the the sheriff's office, in conjunction with another sheriff's office in the center of the state, um, announced some charges in a cold case from 2002 that's called the Jack in the Box case. Um, and we thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of talk about First of all, what the cold case team does and, and kind of how all of this works and the technology involved, and then maybe touch on some cold cases that are still outstanding in the county. Sure. Yeah. So, Jeremy, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the Jack in the Box case first so we can sort of get a lay of the land going on here? Sure. So it wasn't a case that uh, Sarah and I were really involved in. It's kind of before our time uh, when the case started. So Jack in the Box started in May 8th of 2002 was when the body was located. And then and it kind of just got investigated thoroughly like another type of homicide. And as time went on, there was no further leads. There was nothing they could do. So um, the case goes cold, obviously. So in 2009, when the cold case team came to fruition in Ottawa County, detectives, you know, you pick cases based on the solvability, whether, um, you know, how old they are and, really what you can run with. Now, the difference with Jack in the Box was there was another detective that wasn't part of the cold case team that kind of started that and continued to work on that. So he kept uh, kind of working on it as much time as he had and then had a full caseload on the side. So it's it's a little harder and it's not really the whole cold case theory. But sure. what happened basically is uh, he kept working on it uh, and they did a ton of work in Ottawa County. And then uh, in 2015 somebody had come across uh, our, you know, some of the webpage stuff um, done by Dr. Shock and some other stuff that was put on social media, read about it, and then decided, hey, I think I know who this is. And then they call in to our detective who's still working the case. And he says, okay, and gets a tip and they start running it, working it down. And sure. sure enough, you know, that happened to be who it was. And then once you get somebody identified, it really helps the case, obviously, because if, you don't know who this person is. It's you're kind of going in circles trying to go out from there. So that happened, and then they found out that uh, this actually occurred in Eaton County near Charlotte. And then they we kind of worked in conjunction with them, and then that's kind of where it, everything the dominoes started falling, sure. and um, you know we got to this point. So this is obviously still ongoing. So a little harder to talk to about the spe- specifics of it. Sure, um, but that's kind of the gist of it. And there was. Uh, part of the whole cold case theory, too, or uh, another part of this case will be you'll see in a lot of these cold cases that um, alliances kind of end. You know, with somebody that wouldn't want to talk about you now, uh, 20 years from now, if they have no alliance to you, may come with, forward with information and say, hey, you know what, I have nothing to do with them now. And you know, and then tell the story sure. what happened. So that's kind of what happened with Jack so, in the Box. So a little bit of background for people that don't know about the Jack in the Box case. Um, it was a, a man that was found burned in a blueberry field in Grand Haven Township in kind of a, 
what do you even it was we a call big it a metal, metal footlocker okay yeah, yeah like yeah. that kind of is on like the back of a, a truck bed right yeah. okay gotcha um and he ended up being from the the center of the state and and the murder actually happened near charlotte not ottawa county correct, correct. okay gotcha so um the charges that are are pending i think it's very interesting that one of the individuals that charges are against is not in the u.s anymore can you talk a little bit about that whole situation well i you know, I, I don't know exactly what has all been put out there, too, sure. as far as news release, which usually is done by either uh, Captain Bennett or, you know, Detective Sergeant Sparks now, which is still rather new with our department as far as a sergeant position. But, yeah, our our, our suspect is out of the country, we believe. And, I, know, and uh, I don't know exactly where they're tracking this person at this time. And I don't okay. even know if they've released all the names. Sure, sure. And I, I think they have, but... You know, yeah. I, I know we have a couple in custody based on their involvement either during the homicide or after the fact. And uh, now they're working on, you know, getting this lady back into the country. Right. So fascinating. That is a cool part of that. And and it's cool we're watching other jurisdictions work together for one common goal, you know. Right. And uh, that's, it'll be done and I'm, we'll see how it goes from there. But. Right. So um, when, when you guys, have a case that you're able to finally, you know, have some sort of resolution on. Talk a little bit about the process next of selecting an, a new case to focus on kind of out of your, your list. Basically the selecting of the case really comes from the bosses first. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> but it's really based upon all of us working together and talking and one, is it solvable? Um, has something changed? Has time elapsed where we think we can get in there and um, and check the alliances and um, you know or the age of it? Now I had worked Polinsky for three years plus, still still technically involved with the Polinsky case right now, and um, that case was in '77, so it was 40 years old when we started it. And you have multiple people that have died that we needed to interview or witnesses um, during that time period, you know. And basically because it was a hard life back then when in the 70s and people were using different drugs and, were, uh, you know, the information wasn't out there. A lot of them died from hepatitis C with the heroin epidemic from Vietnam. We've learned from like hundreds and hundreds of interviews. Sure. So it makes it more difficult. So we figure if you're going to go, let's go on this case now. Okay. A 40-year-old case can't wait any longer. Sure. We have to work it now. And then, you know, if things um, dry up or we have no further leads and you can – put it aside or keep it open and see what happens with technology. And that's really what we're, what we really worked with on technology on Polinsky. Sure. So. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Deb Polinsky case. Cause I think that's pretty well known in the Holland area at least. Right. Um, so uh, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about just sort of the basics of the case? Well, I'm going to leave that to Jeremy. Oh, okay. Sure. Cause I, <laughs> I came into the cold case uh, division recently. Um, so Polinsky is kind of wrapping up or, or was wrapping up, um, when I came on board. So I think it would be more prudent for Jeremy to, to talk about that as he has the most information well, yeah, sure, about go that for specific it. case. <laughs> I'll just keep yapping away. Go for yep. it. That's what we like. So, You're great. You're doing great. Basically what Deb Polinsky is, she was a female living alone in a farmhouse on New Holland, just east of 152nd, almost to the corner there. Okay. Around so, Blueberry Fields so Port and, Sheldon Township then. Yes. Okay. Just into it. So that's the border right there. And she lives on the north side of the road. Um, she was found by a coworker after not showing up to work on Monday, 
which was unusual for her. And on top of that, she had just gotten in trouble the week prior. So they really felt that she wasn't going to miss work sure. on Monday. So the coworker found her, no forced entry, goes into the house and, and uh, finds her in a bedroom, murdered, stabbed to death. She was naked at the time. They talk about sexual crimes back in that in 77 originally, but based on their autopsy and stuff, there was no signs of sexual assault. Now, mind you, that way we look at sexual assaults today compared to then is different. Um, so they looked for a few things and didn't see that and determined no sexual assault. And we're not against that still. So they determined back there, investigators look at it and say, we think she died Saturday because that's the last time anybody saw her. There's you know, a, a TV guide opened to that day. Now, Detective Sparks and I originally got this case. Um, he is now since promoted to the sergeant position, but we've done hundreds, if not a thousand plus death investigations. We didn't feel comfortable that she died Saturday. Okay. Her body was in too pristine a condition um, in a farmhouse, second floor. Median temperature was like 85 and humid in August, I mean, July of. 77. So we know how the body starts to deteriorate over a couple days. So we felt more comfortable Sunday into Monday, even even Monday, might even have been Monday morning. So that changed some things. And the forensic pathologist, Dr. Start, agreed with us, unless there was an air conditioning unit in that, in that place, which we know there was not. Um, it was probably during that time frame. So with Polinsky, same thing. They worked out investigators did a ton of work back then sure it was not any fault of them but then you know cold cases you work that case nothing else you go over it with a fine-tooth comb look for things that are maybe have been missed the other team had picked it up prior to us sent some stuff in and what we did is i came in earlier than jake found that there was a lab sheet of dna that uh, they found that was not our victims so they found a female DNA profile that was not Deb Polinsky's, which was new to us. Nobody had seen that. So that's kind of that whole thing of going over it like a fine-tooth comb because other people are going through so many stacks of paper. And uh, so we, we located that. And then all along, there's been a bloody fingerprint at the scene that has never been identified and that we're confident was left by someone at the scene or a suspect at the scene. And um, so you have two super good um, pieces of evidence that still have never been identified. And, sure. and uh, so Jake and I had done over 300 interviews, pulled 60 plus buckle swabs from individuals, hoping to eliminate them or match them. Um, we've done several interviews out of state across to California and back. So I, I know that um, Deb Polinsky's stepfather passed away recently. And, um, you know, with, with a case of this age, there does seem to be kind of a, a time clock on it of wanting to give some sort of not peace, obviously, but, but resolution to, to the remaining family members. Correct. Um, so what are some of the, the tools, especially maybe with social media that you've been using for the Polinsky case to try and get a resolution as quickly as you can? We, we talked about it for a while and then uh, we came up with the justice for Deb Polinsky page and we had seen some other, cold cases do something similar and this is a facebook page that correct you got? sorry okay. facebook and the th- the theory behind that is most of your young kids are using instagram snapchat stuff like that sure your younger kids are not really on facebook as much as our older people 
myself included. So I figure that's the best social media page at this point because we could do news releases and we did do news releases on new things that we have coming up with. And we just didn't get as amount of tips that we thought we would, but we're only hitting this regional area probably right, right. Well, with Facebook. Obviously you reach out to California, to Texas, to New York. And then we immediately started getting in information and information and information. Private messages were coming into me and then we'll go directly to my email or Jake. And then we kind of work from there sure. and it's been great. I mean, that, that uh, page will be slow, but then all of a sudden you'll get people call. Oh, we had one three or four months ago call in. Hey, my daughter saw this. She called me because she knew I was at something you were looking for. And I got some information. If you want to come and meet up with me in northern Michigan, sure. We'll drive out there. This is all we do. Sure. Eight hours a day or plus, you know, Monday through Friday, we work this case. And are you still getting tips on the Polinsky case? I mean, I, I know right now it's still unsolved. Correct. We we just followed up on a big, massive uh, one of them, and we haven't really got anything recently, recently. So that case is really, we're working on some, you know, lab work, and um, we're getting to that point where our leads are just kind of, you know, going away. But the technology that's it's been coming through a DNA and fingerprints with new algorithms that they're talking about the Michigan State uh, Crime Lab. We're not. We're pretty hopeful that things could change because with the DNA, now there's these private labs like Parabon um, and Sorensen and some others that I, I don't know all their names, but they can tell you the genealogy of the person that you have your DNA. Um, they can do a face morphology and print you up a picture of basically what that person should look like. And, um, and even with the, you know, these other private labs doing 23andMe and Ancestry.com, uh, what's happened is if you have a good enough DNA source and it matches up to one of the relatives, I mean, there you go. And that's what we're, tr- we're starting to see with these other cold cases that have been solved. Um, the problem with ours is, is we have a very old DNA profile that's very sure. deteriorated because of the time frame. And um, it's just hard to match up. We need it to be to come a little bit more. And we've said all along that if we could find a relative of our profile, even that would probably allow us to solve this case within a month. Fascinating. Okay. But we have to get to that point. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the the social media side of the technology. But um, could you guys talk a little bit more about some of the other um, like lab tools or investigative techniques that you're kind of seeing come along in that process as technology gets further developed? I think Jeremy mentioned, um, you know, even a changing technology and fingerprints, which is something that's been used for years and years, um, just changing logarithms and um, things in the minutia and the fingerprints um, has really um, is advancing. And so those are the kinds of things that we hope, even though we have um, maybe a fingerprint right now that the technology isn't matching it to anything. Maybe with some new logarithms or some new programs that come out that have a different way of comparing a fingerprint or different way of, of counting the, the points in the fingerprint or doing something like that, um, you know, that that'll move it forward. Um, I don't want to sound repetitive, but um, same thing like he said with 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com and some of the other private laboratories, that's opening up opportunities to get into databases sure. that aren't that aren't exactly criminal. So, okay, so explain a little bit. Jeremy touched on, say you have a DNA profile from someone that you're not sure who it is. If someone else in that person's family has done 
a, a genealogy test like 23 and me, you guys are saying that you could maybe get to that suspect through a, a relative's DNA that's available on one of these databases. Is, is that how that would work? Right. You'd get a partial profile. Okay. Um, for example, if, you know, doing, um, testing a Y chromosome, that Y chromosome would match all the paternally related males, you know, um, in a, in a family. Um, so that, that may at least get you to a family, um, mitochondrial DNA, other types of things, um, that will get you a partial profile like in a female. Um, so there's other, there's, there's pieces of the profile that you would get. So they would, I mean, ideally it'd be your suspect would have the information out there, but, um, if not, you know, it could definitely attach you to a family or a, a related Interesting. Okay. So if you were to get some sort of partial match like that, would you then start interviewing that specific family for information of, hey, do you know anyone in your family that was related to that case? Like, how do you make that jump from relative to suspect? I think it would be important to look up the history. Um, You know, for example, in the Polinsky case, Jeremy said they've done 300 interviews, you know, so, so if we did have some sort of, um, I'd say a, a partial match on a DNA or something, a relative, something like that, then it would be um, interesting. I think we probably want to do research before we did any interviews as to who's related to that person. How are maybe these people that we've already looked at related and and see if we can make those connections first. Um, We may not even have to go to the person whose DNA we hit on if we know that this is his brother or or a cousin or something like that. We could go back and and do some additional um, investigation on that that particular person. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I miss anything there? No, I think you're right. I, I would just caution that we can't work directly or we're not allowed to work directly with like Ancestry or 23. We've tried to write search warrants to say, hey, we want to see if you have someone that matches this. And they basically say, eh, we're not going to honor your search warrant. And bye. Is it because of like medical laws, like HIPAA I, I, kind I of think stuff? it's more just a privacy act and they're trying to cover the people that are doing this to find out, you know, what, you know, nationality they come from or what ancestry they come from. But we also know that somebody has to be doing this. And uh, I don't know if it's a private route going private route, one private route where we're more in the public. And, you know, it's that fear that law enforcement or the government's going to get inside of one thing and they're going to see everybody's and they're going to have everybody's DNA. And I totally understand that. But there's also the other side of, um, trying to give some families some closure. And, and uh, I think what she's saying too, as far as the relatives, we know this case so inside and out. And I think based on the circumstances in our case with the big German shepherd dog there and some other things, I think that you could, we feel like we probably even interviewed somebody that's associated with it or had done it. And now if you get on that family member and there's search uh, engines and investigative tools online that can pay, basically give your family history you know, a rundown. You might not get the fourth cousin. Sure. And that's what they caution you with in our lab is you might get a hit, but this could be a fourth, fifth, sixth cousin. Are you going to know that of your suspect, potential suspect? So you, you'd still have to work it back. And I think a good investigator will work it back and try to have things lined up before they go talk to somebody. So somebody can't, you go to there to interview them, they tell you a line of bull and you, okay, and you just walk away. But Interesting. Sounds like quite a lot of legwork going on there, guys. <laughs> I would say three months to three to five months of reading a case over and over and over again and getting acclimated before you even do one interview. That's what we did in Polinsky. Oh. And the only reason we did our first interview was because one of the potential suspects was dying. We knew he only had a couple weeks to live. And we got that on a tip. 
and it was legit. We interviewed him, and a week later, he passed away. So it was a perfect time to do an interview. Unfortunately, we couldn't match him up to our sure. case, and we would never you know, put pieces in that don't fit. That's, right, that's right. the key. So when you guys are working a cold case that say it's not necessarily 40 years old, I mean, there's some from, you know, the early 2000s in the county. When you don't physically have a crime scene to walk in, measure, um, you know, take pictures of anymore, how do you change how you're investigating a case when you don't physically have somewhere that you can, you know, step inside of? In reading over, you know, thousands of reports in my time as a, as a law enforcement officer, it's, it's always easy to look and, and I mean, we have very good investigators, we have very good officers, but it's as you read through a report and you think, oh, you know, what about this piece? You know, um, there's little pieces in that report that you start to pull out, you start to want to look at and, and think more about that maybe at the time didn't seem as important either to the investigating officer or, or whatever was happening. Um, so I would say, I don't want to get off off track on what you particularly asked, but um, kind of how do you do it without the crime scene is what you asked, right? Yeah. You can cut that out. Um, <laughs> um, so you really just start to step back and look at the, the all of the documents and all of the paperwork and photographs and everything that they have. You hope that, that they did a nice detailed investigation, sure. even though they really didn't have much to go on at the time. Um, and you, you start there. Um, I think in the Polinsky case, um, Detective Sparks and Detective Baum actually went back to the house. Even though it's 40 years later, they went back to the home. They walked through it. They tried to get a more of a physical perspective, maybe did some measurements that weren't done initially at the scene or did some other things. But getting a physical perspective, I think, was very valuable for them. Um, and I've heard him talk about that. Maybe he can talk a little bit more about going back to the scene. Yeah, Sarah said it right. You have to rely on your previous investigators and go from your experience on what they're seeing and kind of see it through their eyes but with jake and i we did have that opportunity the house was empty still on new holland and we said it over and over again and we went there and we saw the original pictures all from their you know 35 millimeter film that we thought somebody retook the pictures because the house looked identical to 1977 Ooh, that's a the way scary. the bushes were growing on there the way the tree was uh against the house and even the paint on the side, it actually uh, maybe looked a little bit better now than it did in 77 until recently. But we really wanted to get in that house and do a total station, which takes all the measurements like they do on uh, crash scenes. We do it a lot on uh, death scenes and stuff like that. And just get our perspective. Like, it looks so big in the drawing, but you're looking at the measurements. We walked uh, the whole house. There was still the original wallpaper in there from... 77 we found the stove downstairs in the basement that was the original stove in there and and the, the it just you could tell it was much smaller than what we thought originally mm-hmm. the house was still a big house for one person but the rooms were a little smaller you could see if there was an altercation what would probably happen uh so you had a better idea but before that you just you have to go on the photos they had back then and and no offense to them, but they're taking it with a camera. They can't see the picture after we take it like we do now. Sure. We tell deputies and detectives and sergeants, take tons of photos because you're never going to get a second chance at the first time. And if for, we don't want them, who cares? We're not paying for them. They're going to sit on a computer or they're going to get you know, placed in evidence. They're digital and uh, we'll have them. But if we don't have them, we can never get them back. And that was a hard thing with Jake and I. 
we're so used to how we take photos or how they do now. It was different back then. And sure. I'm sure they weren't really looking at a money thing. They just didn't know any better. Forensic wasn't, Forensics was just coming into police work then. So, so I've talked to, to Captain Bennett, who's the investigative services captain, before about just the sheer amount of evidence that can sometimes be in a case. And when it's a, a cold case or a case that, that remains open over the years, that evidence is still in the the ownership of the sheriff's office. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So talk a little bit about how that works of going and finding this evidence, you know, having it in your hands, how that works in a cold case. I think, you know, in starting a new cold case, it's, it's kind of one of the first things you want to do after you read the reports and you go through the information, then it's time to pull out the evidence and take a look of what they're talking about. What, you know, they're talking about specific clothing items or items that were found around the home to actually get a, a look at them, a perspective. Uh, maybe we'll see something additional that wasn't seen before or, or have another idea just by, by laying those things out on a table and seriously putting out evidence paper and, and laying things out and sitting them out and looking at them and talking about them, um, I think proves to be really valuable and just similar to, to going back to the house where the crime occurred is just giving you a different perspective on things rather than just reading about them in the report. Yeah, that's that sums it up. That's exactly what I would have said. And I think our uh, the policy is that any any homicide we keep the evidence indefinitely. Correct. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of just stuff physically. Is there a like a specific place that you guys keep all of these things? Or we do have a specific place for larger evidence items. You okay. know, there's um, kind of archived evidence. I guess you should say. Sure. Um, you know, we have a, a working evidence room in our evidence department, um, but then also, you know, there is a storage area that's for more archived or um, larger items, cars, for example, um, that have been part of a homicide or something like that. Um, those things need to be stored and they need to be, you know, the chain of evidence needs to be preserved. So um, it is, you know, sometimes a challenge um, having that secure locked facility, but I think we do a good job of that in our agency. Yeah. So, um I know that there are kind of these other uh, five current cases in the in the county. Let's see. Well, we have on my list. I have four that have been solved and three that are unsolved. Is that what you? Mean? Okay. So um, I so the last time that we did a cold case update was in 2013. So it's possible that just ones on my list are no are no longer cold cases. So um, okay. So we already talked about Deb Polinsky. Right. Um, Deb Wilson from 87, is that still an open cold case? It, it is technically, but they believe that they have solved that case uh, through through investigation. Obviously, there was a charge. There was charges of perjury for Delver Compass back. I'm trying to find the date here. That was in, he was charged in, or sentenced in 2013 okay. Okay. on probation for perjury. Oh, interesting. Um, for lying during some investigative subpoenas. Um, when they brought him into, you know, I think he did admit to being on the scene of the okay. homicide. Um, and uh, threw out another name. Um, right. And then uh, that person died kind of during the pendency of the investigation. Okay. They were never able to articulate that second suspect or if sure. there was a second suspect. Um, so in a way it's unsolved, but, um, but I think we kind of feel like we know what happened there. I gotcha. Okay. Right. The family's kind of been notified on that. And sure. the, the suspect that they were focusing in on failed the polygraph exam. 
was under some huge stress and then ended up dying of a heart attack. And they believe that's correlated with what was going on yeah, at the yeah. time. So, okay. right. And they, and they had some other um, things of evidence that really linked that person to Wilson. So I think they met with the family, went over it. We're never going to possibly right, get charges, but you charge, won't, right. but you, you can't actually close it as well because if new information was to come about and that led you in a different direction for some reason, you'd look really silly having sure. that down. So, right. Okay, so the next one that I have on my list is um, it's a Jane Doe from 94 in Wright Township. And this is, um, they've nicknamed it the Matilda case. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the, the specifics of, of that one? Matilda was a, a female, um, some skeletal remains that was found at the, the southern end of 32nd Avenue where it meets uh, I-96. So at a dead end, um, kind of in a wooded area. Um, they found in the area also her clothing. Um, but also, she remains an unidentified um, victim. Um, they did rule it a homicide, but the cause of her death was unknown. Um, and, and it was around the time, um, in 1994, around the time there was a lot of prostitutes being killed down in the Grand Rapids area, and then their bodies being discarded in various in various areas. Um, and I think that, you know, for her specifically, she was never able to be identified. Um, we do have, you know, dental records on file for her. We have DNA on file for her, um, but we've never been able to match them up with with anyone. So, when you don't know the identity of someone's remains, I mean, can you talk a little bit about those specific challenges of even trying to find any sort of lead to follow? I think it would be a different case if, uh, like in this particular case, she was just found at a in a wooded area at the end of a dead end road. Um, you know, if she was found in a home somewhere or something more specific, um, maybe able to, to do some backtracking and figure out maybe how they got there or, um, but, but when a body is just discarded in an area that's not really relevant to any other, um, any other place, I think that, that trumps the challenges, you know, it, it really makes it difficult, um, in the identification. So, um, you know, of course, identification or tattoos, some other things, you know, may have been helpful. Um, but just, there was just nothing that, um, stuck out. They did do, tried to do a, a drawing or they did a, the state police did a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a rendering. Like a kind rendition, of a recon- yeah. yeah. Kind yeah. of a reconstructed, I think they did a clay, uh, clay type reconstruction based on the bone structure. And then also a drawing of, um, of what they suspect that person would look like. Um, but basically I think what we kind of came up you know, with in an answer for her is that she's 35 to 50 years old, somewhere between five, six and five, 10 with brown hair, you know, so that's really, that's pretty vague. Um, it's pretty sure. vague. It's pretty vague. And, you know, oftentimes if, if this was, um, someone was involved in, in the drug world or in prostitution and those kinds of things, they oftentimes don't get listed as missing, um, because their, their habit is to disappear or, or be missing. So, um, so that just makes it even more difficult matching sure. it up with a missing person. You just haven't been able to do that. So the other two cases that, that we have on our list are, are much more recent. They're in, in the two thousands. So, um, we have one from 2005 of a 16 month old with some head injuries. I don't know if we can talk a little bit about the, the basics of that case. Um, Elizabeth Jeleno was a 16 month old or um, child, um, living in her home with her mom and her mom's boyfriend and the mother's grandparents. Um, 
She had a severe head injury and some abdominal injuries that um, eventually led to her death. Um, and we got very little uh, cooperation from the family. And I think they had a difficult time believing that the injuries were not accidental in any way um, and kind of refused to to make statements or cooperate with the police um, once they had been notified that it had been ruled a homicide because of the extent of her injuries. Um, they then all, uh, you know, employed attorneys and refused to make any further statements. So that was a very difficult case at that time um, when you just really have uh, people who are in the care of that child. Um, and initially it was a medical, you know, they took her to the hospital as a medical. And then once uh, she died and the autopsy was performed, it was found that she um, had died from these injuries that, um, you know, so you're kind of backtracking to go back to get additional information. Sure. Am I correct on that? Yeah. And then the most recent case is from 2008. It's um, Jana Lee Kelly, correct? So yeah. what are the, the details on that case? Jana Kelly was killed in 2007. Um, but her body wasn't found in the in Ottawa County, um, in the area of a Pearson 160th, um, until spring of 2008. Um, she was found um, in the nude. Her body had been burned, or they had attempted to burn her, um, and really didn't have any any idea. She was had been listed as a missing person in uh, in Kent County. I'm not sure right. exactly what agency. Um, somewhere in Kent County, um, and that they, and they had located her vehicle, um, in Kent County at the time she had been reported missing in 2007. Um, she was a businesswoman, um, landlord, that kind of stuff, uh, very unusual for her to, to just turn up missing. So when they found her body in 2008, um, couldn't find uh, really the, the cause of injury, I think at the time, but it was ruled a homicide. Um, and that case was picked up by cold case in 2000. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, they ended up um, getting a conviction of a former tenant mm-hmm. of um, Jana, Robin Root. She was convicted in 2015 of of murder. And she had owned owed Jana Kelly three thousand um, dollars, and in a confrontation about that, they had, you know, Robin assaulted her, um, tied her up, and or taped her up and put her in the trunk of her car while she was still alive. Oh, wow. Okay. And then she uh, subsequently, I think, died. And um, and then her body was discarded out in Ottawa County. Sure. So that incident actually occurred in Grand Rapids City. I see. Um, so okay. that was another case that um, the two agencies worked in conjunction with one another right. um, to, to solve that case. So, Jeremy and Sarah, what are the cases that you two are working on right now? Right now we're still doing the finishing touches on Polinsky to see what happens there. We had just had some new information that came in or uh, some print work that just came to us that we've been looking for for quite some time. And uh, FBI kind of assisted us with it. And those will go into the lab and get uh, tested. Then we're, we'll have to reevaluate where we're at as far as which directions we've, we've, we've gone in so many directions and those leads are kind of, kind of going away. And then we'll, we'll talk with the family I don't know where we're at and uh, kind of go from there with that case. And then, then we'll make a determination where we, you know, where we start from there, which cold case they would like us to look at, whether that be Jelena or Matilda or 
Um, I think those are the two main ones. Right, and we're kind of reading through those both right now just to um, read all the fine details and, and kind of think maybe which one would be most viable to begin next. I will say, though, to go back to Kelly real quick, that is a that case was clearly solved based on good investigative work by cold case because what had happened in that case is Grand Rapids and us had worked together. Grand Rapids uh, took the, mo- the majority of the stuff from the, the original scene of her house. They had done interviews there. We didn't get into that case until we found the body later on, uh, which was, what, in 08? 08. And what happened is Venus Repper, who was one of the main cold case investigators with Blakely, and then Craig Brace came on right after Dave Blakely retired. She she did the typical thing. You go over piece by piece by piece by piece of evidence. And what she noted is a lot of people's DNA had been sent in, and Grand Rapids thought they'd sent all of them in. Well, she noted that the former tenant that lived right behind her, DNA had never been sent in. So knowing that, they quickly shipped that off to the crime lab. As you guys well probably know, DNA is not fast to come back. But it did, and they called them, and it was a hit. And that's what led to the whole investigation going that Robin Root direction. And um, so the evidence was clearly linked to somebody that was with her at the time that she had you know, been taken in her car and stuff. So without those eyes going over every piece of evidence, it could have been missed. Because you can rely on the other officers and say, did you send in all the DNA? And if the officer really thinks he did or the detective, they did. But this is what the case of going one by one by one. And the same thing happened with Polinsky. They never saw that we had a different DNA profile than our victims until Jake and I got into that case and went over every one because they were looking at three at the time. During the Plinsky case, you're looking at Plinsky, Wilson, and Brinks. They were all within like a mile and a half of each other. So the thought was, do we have a serial killer in Holland? Well, we've known now that that's not the case, but you look at that thing. You know, you look at those things when you're doing it. So that was big with Janet Kelly. Also, also that she got retried, Robin did. So I had to go back for a week in trial in Kent County. Lee Fisher, the prosecutor from Ottawa County, did the case in Kent County. Uh, And I don't know exactly why that all happened, but that's how it did. And uh, she was convicted of second degree instead of first, but um, that's a jury to make the determination. It was still a great case, and um, she'll spend a lot of time behind bars where she belongs, really. Good cold case work there. It was. That was really where you see the cold case aspect come in. So I know that um, a phrase that a lot of cold case detectives will, will say is somebody knows something, right? That someone out there saw something, heard something, a friend told them years ago. Um, So we have cold cases in the County that are still actively being investigated. So what are the best ways for someone that, you know, gosh, maybe they remember something years later and, and they, never told anyone what is the best way for them to get that information to the cold case team? Um, well, we have a silent observer in Ottawa County. Some people are hesitant to call. Maybe they don't want to be involved. They have a piece of information that's important, but they're, they're just not sure that they want to be involved or they want their name attached. Um, silent observers are a great way to get that information to us. Um, we have an online, you can submit an online tip through mosotips.com. And that's anonymous, right, Sarah? That's it. It can be. Okay. Yes. Yes. If you want it to be anonymous, it is. Um, you can call Ottawa County Central Dispatch and tell them that you would like to remain anonymous or you can give your name. If you have information, you know, we've had uh, in the Polinsky case, we had lots of people call in with tips and that resulted in us going out to interview or 
and Jeremy and uh, Jake going out to, to interview them. Um, uh, some people maybe just have information that they don't know is valuable. Um, we've heard that as well. Um, I believe it was the beginning of the Polinsky case where they did make an arrest in the Polinsky case and then they uh, cleared that person. Am I correct on right. that? And, and so a, a tip that came in years later um, from someone who had some information or had a tip um, said, geez, I never even thought about the information again because I thought someone had been arrested. So sometimes not knowing um, the whole story, maybe there's information out there that, um, so bringing it back up into the media, bringing up the Facebook site, bringing up all that information um, really sometimes opens people's eyes to, oh, I didn't even know that was unsolved. Um, but another way they can contact, they can just call the sheriff's department. They can call a deputy. They can, you know, anybody will will get us in touch with them or get the information to us. Um, however, they're most comfortable doing that. It's nice about the even the online. I would say is you can converse back and forth just by typing. So it doesn't have to be on the phone. They can live leave the tip anonymously. Say that they're going to allow the the conversation to go back and forth. I could type a message back. Hey, thanks. I've been looking at that. Can you tell me more or whatever? Or do you have you know further information about whatever I'm thinking of? And then they'll respond because they're 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 checking it again and they get back on there and they might just feel more comfortable doing that, which is I think has been great. I think the online tips have been great, mm-hmm. not just for cold case, but other cases I had worked in the past. Sure, right, absolutely. Do you have any burning questions, Brian? Yeah, go for it. I did have one question. What <laughs> what do TV and movie cop dramas get right, and what do they get wrong? about cold cases about the investigative i know people look at csi and immediately think oh they caught a reflection of a guy in a photo they can find the label on the back of the jacket and and for somebody who works with photos all day long that's not the case um Um, yeah i would say number one is that things aren't fast you know, um, I think TV, you know, they have 30 minutes or an hour to, to pack in a story. And so you don't, you don't get the piece that it takes six months for DNA to come back from the lab or, you know, to get your finger, to get it, you know, we submit a print, it can take a month or two for that to come back. So, um, it's just very time consuming and it's very, um, it's very tedious, um, where you really need a lot of information to back up certain facts. So if somebody says, you know, uh, John Smith did it, you know, um, we don't just run it right over and arrest John Smith, right? We have lots of research and lots of time and things. And, and I think that those types, that type of information becomes frustrating to people because they'll say, I told you four months ago that, that, that so-and-so was involved and, and they're still not arrested. Um, and we really have to do our homework and, and uh, you know, dot all our I's and cross all our T's and make sure that we have probable cause so we don't, you know, violate anyone else's rights. Um, so... It's, I would say that's number one, is it's not as fast as it looks like on TV. It's very slow. Is there something that they get right that they really – because I know there's, there's a couple dramas out there that really show the whole – the process behind an investigation. I would say what we talked about early, a little bit earlier is when I noticed that some of the – maybe the cold case or the ID shows of the older cases is you've usually talked to that person before or someone associated with them. And I go back that to that a lot with our with our cases and look, and it is it was true with Brinks. They had talked to Ryan Weingarten. Um, they had talked to Delbert Compass and Wilson. I don't know about the second subject so much as, but they they already had it. They had it. It was already there. They had talked to Robin Root. Yes, they had talked to Robin Root. They interviewed her right off the bat. 
So chances are you investigators are investigators for a reason. They're pretty good at what they do and they're good at that, that aspect of police work. So there's a great chance that they've already hit it and they just couldn't, they didn't get the right information at the time or they couldn't prove it. There's a lot of crimes that we know exactly who did it, but proving that is I can go arrest the guy, but if I can't get it through court, what is it? It doesn't matter. And we teach a lot of the younger guys that come out of the department too. It's great that you go make an arrest, but if you don't make a, if you don't write a report to substantiate why you arrested them and how it follows, that person's getting out the next day. So it, you did no good. Um, so that's what we kind of look at. And I think some of those shows do get it right that you've already hit them before. And they'll mm-hmm. show that a lot. And that's we believe that too. But we just need that little bit of information. Yeah. I think that the, the big uh, thing with Ottawa County is, is Blakely, Rapper, and Brace really set the, the tone for it. And especially uh, Dave Blakely and Venus Rapper, they really – got it flying with two MSP detectives initially signed to them, but then they took them away because of funding for Michigan state police, which is that's the world we live in. Uh, they did a great job. And I think this, a lot of this started from Chandler's going with Holland, Holland police department, really making some progress on Chandler and uh, seeing that and saying, okay, yeah, why aren't we doing the same thing? And, and we kind of got on board with that. And, and you look at Chandler, I, I think what's crazy is you, You'll say a bunch of people can't know about this because no one, no, you know, they can't keep secrets. But look at how many people were involved in Chandler's Janet Chandler's murder, and that was a lot of people with a lot of mouths shut. So it can happen. Uh, and so I think about that the same with Plinsky or any other case. Now with Jono, if we ever got to that in the future, you're looking at a, you you kind of know who was there. That's a little different than most cases. So that way, it's just getting people to open up and talk now. And that's the job we'll have to do. Right. Right. Well, on behalf of Audrey Gamble, uh, I want to thank Detective Sarah Filament and Detective Jeremy Bond for joining us. Thank uh, you for having us. Oh, yeah, of course. For us. This is really illuminating and very thought-provoking. And I learned a lot just from uh, – <laughs> and not to trust anything I see on television these days. <laughs> uh, so, again, on, th- on behalf of Audrey Gamble, I'm Brian Brunellis. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on From the Newsroom.